Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our worship pastor, Riley Monto. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all. Hey, uh, my name is Riley. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, and I get the chance to cover the pulpit today. Very thankful for this opportunity. So thanks for having me. Um, Our lead pastor, Nate, as you guys know, uh, is currently away on vacation with his family, hopefully nice and deep into rest mode by now. And uh, before Pastor Nate left for vacation, he kicked us back into our summer series um, on the Psalms. So if you guys have your Bible with you, grab it out, turn to Psalm 13. If you have the Bible app on your phone, it's even quicker. Just open to Psalm 13. Uh, Today, as we look at Psalm 13, we're going to talk a lot about this subject of waiting. Waiting. We don't like waiting for things, right? We're in a culture and society that settles for nothing less than instant gratification. Oftentimes, if I have to wait for something, I'm like, come on, it's 2023. This should be, it should be instant now, right? I have to catch myself all the time. I'm so impatient. Uh, And waiting just feels so inconvenient from time to time. And businesses have caught onto this as well. Uh, You know, for instance, Netflix now drops entire seasons of our favorite shows so we can watch all the episodes without having to wait for anything else to release. Amazon has that scary one-click button to buy something. And if you don't know, the Domino's Pizza app actually will make an order for you if you stay on the checkout page for more than 10 seconds. So buyer beware. But everything is just becoming more instant, more fast, more efficient, right? And, uh, you know, while it's amazing to have the gap between our desire and the product minimized, it's actually taking its toll on our spiritual health. According to a survey done by the Pew Research Center, fewer than half of U.S. adults pray daily. And this number has fallen uh, in the past 15 years. It used to be 58%, and now it's 45%. And it's just continuing to decline. Moreover, Crossway did a survey of over 14,000 American Christians, and it was reported that only 2%, 2% of respondents were very satisfied with their prayer lives. And a much larger percentage spoke of a moderate to low satisfaction with their prayer lives. It seems like as our culture has become more instant, um, the satisfaction we used to have with the more slow kind of faith has really dwindled. But our spiritual walk with Jesus was never really intended to be fast. It's always been intended to be slow and disciplined, much like a long walk on a trail or a long brunch with a friend. But with the rate at which society and technology is advancing, many Christians are beginning to expect God to move at the same tempo or rate as maybe like an apple or a Tesla. We love the immediate healings, right? We love the immediate answers. We love the immediate revelations. But what do we do about those prayers and those promises that haven't been answered yet? Maybe you've received a promise from God and it just hasn't happened yet. Maybe you've been praying for something 
and you haven't seen the fulfillment of that prayer yet. Maybe you've prayed for something and you felt let down by God. We've seen those songs like, oh, you're never gonna let me down. And you're like, yeah, but he has though. (laughs) When God doesn't move as fast as we liked, we begin to question if God really is as reliable as he says he is. Or even worse, we may think that he's a liar. Here are the main questions I wanna try to answer, not me, but that we wanna try to answer as we go through Psalm 13 today. Number one, why does God take so long to answer our prayers sometimes? Number two, how can I stay motivated in prayer while I'm waiting? And number three, can I really trust God to eventually answer my prayers? In Psalm 13, we read David's process of asking these questions. He's not praying based off of a prayer list or a pre-written prayer. No, these prayers, these questions are straight from his heart. They're emotional. They're sensitive. They're raw. He's perplexed. He's desperate for answers. Nothing is very pretty about this prayer. But the beauty of this prayer is that David seems to hold his depression with a sense of joy and worship. Almost like the tension and release that you would expect to hear when you listen to some jazz music. Joy seems to be pulling and tugging on David's wearied heart. So I'll just prepare you now. Um, The kind of prayer that we're talking about today, it's like a wrestling match with God. You're on the mat, you're on your back, you're fighting for your life, and you feel like the round is just going on and on forever. You're just waiting for that ding to happen. But that's how prayer feels sometimes. My, my prayer warriors in the house know that sometimes prayer just takes a long time to see anything truly happen. It's uncomfortable. But like C.S. Lewis said, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. So if today's message makes you squirm a little bit, you're in good company. So with that, let's read from Psalm 13 in its entirety. Psalm 13, verse one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray for a moment before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we're just real thankful today that you're a God who deals with our emotions, that you see our anxieties, you see our depression, you see our doubts, and you're a God who meets us in those moments. You don't run away from it. You don't tell us to just overcome something. You walk with us. So thank you for this example of David's prayer where we see questions and resolution to some degree, where we see pleas and praise. And we pray, Lord, today that you'd help your people here at Calvary Monterey to be people who fully trust you with our lives, that we pray prayers with big questions 
because we serve a great big God. So please um, enlighten our eyes to see more of you, um, our hearts to receive you, and pray, God, that as a result of today, that prayer would go out into our community and into our families like it's never really done before. So we ask for your spirit to be here. Um, Please be with us. In your name, amen. Amen. Okay, we're just gonna jump right in. The first question that we're trying to ask today is why does God take so long to answer our prayers? Let's reread verse one. David says, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, David begins this prayer with five questions, and four of them begin with this phrase, how long? There's no hallowed be your name. There's no dear God. There's nothing like that to open this up. He just jumps straight into questions. And what we see here is that David is turning his internal frustration into an open conversation with God. Now, let's just look at the questions a little bit more closely. David asks, and I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit, so I hope you give me a little bit of pastoral liberty just to kind of rephrase these. How long will it be till I get a timeline for this suffering? How long till you end this radio silence and finally respond to me? How long will you keep ghosting me? How long will I have to counsel myself before you start encouraging me again? How long am I gonna be sad? How long will it be till the bad guys stop getting all the good publicity? Now let's just take a second and recognize how significant these questions are for David specifically to be asking. David had been ordained as the king of Israel in his late teen years, um, and he was probably in his mid-20s by this point. And so he wouldn't have even realized or have been on the throne till his late 20s. He's right in the middle of God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise to be king. So he's in a time of wondering, God, what are you doing here? And to make things worse, his father-in-law, the current king Saul, was trying to kill him at the family dinners. So David must have been thinking, I thought I was gonna be king by now. But God's promise sure looks like it's not happening. I've been waiting almost a decade and the king is trying to kill me during this time. How long is it gonna be till God answers my prayers so I can get on with being the king? This time of waiting for David reminds me of something that happened to me last year. Last year, I got the chance to meet up with a personal trainer for a couple of sessions. And before we did anything, my trainer would take a minute just to explain to me the philosophy of how to work your muscles, how to build them back up again, and how to do it all over. And I remember him telling me one time that if you put enough stress on a particular muscle group, then the recovery process will heal your muscles and make them bigger, which I said, I'm I'm in, bro, let's do this. So he then begins to lead me through a workout, and right away I can tell something's kind of off. He's not timing anything, he's not counting reps, he's not counting sets, he's not giving me any feedback on how things are going. He's simply looking at me to see when's my breaking point. So he's trying to see what's happening here. Are we seeing some red face? Are we seeing some contorted uh, expressions? He's just trying to bring me to my breaking point. And right before things cracked, he'd be, all right, we're done. He gave me no heads up. He was just looking at me to tell him when I was about to 
uh, break apart. So rather than blasting out just a few reps, he was trying to see where I was gonna go. I remember Pastor Manny actually was there for one of the sessions and uh, he saw how like th- things were going bad. I was like questioning my life and <laughs> wondering how my daughter was gonna do without me, how my wife was gonna be, be able to provide for herself without me. And once I, once I finished and I dropped the weights, uh, Pastor Manny's like, okay, I think you're good. That, that, that's it. You know, you're, you're, you reached your limit right there. And I think about this with David. You know, he didn't have a timeline for when his testing would be over. There was no time clock. There was no reps set for him. He simply knew that God had given him a promise. But as he cried and stressed out and questioned God, David's faith was actually being stretched beyond its current limitations. And God had supported David with the knowledge, relational trust, and the power to recover his faith into something even stronger and more worshipful. Now let's take a second and address the kinds of questions that David is asking. Maybe you read this passage and you thought to yourself, geez, David, the nerve. I mean, come on, you can't approach God with such a disrespectful tone. Why is he asking so many questions? David, don't you know that God doesn't listen to complaining like this? Shouldn't you just suck it up and trust God? But hold on a second. God never tells us that we can't approach him with these kind of questions. Paul actually says in Philippians chapter four, verse six, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God not only gives us permission or suffers with us when we ask questions, he commands that we ask questions. But how many of us actually approach God and ask him why, when we really need him? If I'm being honest, my tendency is to avoid God when I really need him. Instead of talking to him, I start making my own plans. I start hustling. I start grinding. I try to make my own solutions to the promise that God has given me. I'm like, I'm gonna make this happen right now. (laughs) We're gonna do this right now, God. And while it's good to be active and to work towards solutions, you don't wanna be lazy, it's not okay to hold on to our anxieties and fears and just try and make the work happen itself. God asks that we would release our grip on our worries and anxieties by confessing them to him and waiting on him to fulfill the promises and plans that he's put in front of us. So now you may be wondering, why was David so perplexed? Why did he ask so many questions? What was really troubling him? Why would he think that God had abandoned him? We don't know for sure. David doesn't say it in this Psalm, exactly what happened that caused him to write this prayer. Although like I mentioned earlier, the father-in-law trying to kill him was probably the case. But we do know that David's soul was under such stress and fatigue that it caused him to question God. In this case, it seems that David experienced a spiritual type of depression that many have called throughout the centuries, the dark night of the soul. I just wanna take a second to talk about the dark night of the soul because I think it's pertinent to this prayer. But when we start talking about this, we're starting to get into the muddy and foggy terrain of depression. I just wanna be clear, as you can tell, I'm a pastor. I'm not a psychologist by any stretch. But I do feel a responsibility at least to just explore David's emotional state only as it's helpful for us to understand his prayer. So 
If you guys are down to go with me here for a moment, that'd be helpful. Uh, so with that said, it appears that David did feel depressed. He claims that he's been abandoned, forgotten, ghosted, discouraged, and overlooked. He's stuck. But is he really forgotten? Did God really leave him? Let's look at another prophet real quick who also felt abandoned by God. Jeremiah called the weeping prophet, which is also an amazing metal band name. There's gotta be somebody who takes that name. <laughs> somebody. Also, he also experienced spiritual depression and questioned how long God would punish Israel. And in the book of Lamentations, he's asking God over and over why he's doing what he's doing. He's just trying to understand God's disciplinary measures. But it seems that he comes around the corner and starts to understand a little bit of what God is doing and makes amends with God and his timing and his plan when he said in Lamentations chapter three, verses 25 through 27, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So what is Jeremiah saying here? I think what Jeremiah is saying here is that these dark nights of the soul, they're actually good for us, especially for young people like David. And why would I say that? We're, we're all trying to escape depression, right? We, nobody wants anxiety. But I think Jeremiah knew that God actually didn't hide his face from people. Instead, like the Israelites, we oftentimes become blind to God's presence for a number of reasons. But if a young person like David could learn that God is close during those times when they feel like he's far away, then their faith will be able to endure those seasons of depression with hope, with worship. And at first, they may feel tempted to think that God has abandoned them, but because their faith has already been tested, the, the faith muscle has been worked they'll be able to remember God's faithfulness and maintain hope through their grief. R.C. Sproul said, we may think that the dark night of the soul is something completely incompatible with the fruit of the spirit. Not only that of faith, but also that of joy. Those are different um, fruits of the spirit, faith and joy. Once the Holy Spirit has flooded our hearts with joy unspeakable, how can there be room in that chamber for such darkness. It's important for us to make a distinction between the spiritual fruit of joy and the cultural concept of happiness. A Christian can have joy in his heart while there is still spiritual depression in his head. The joy that we have sustains us through these dark nights and is not quenched by spiritual depression. The joy of the Christian is one that survives all downturns of life. And this reminds us, you know, what Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter four, verses seven through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus 
so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. When we take communion together, this is one of the things that we remember, his death and body with us, his death and resurrection with us. The dark night of the soul, it's temporary. It doesn't last forever is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so back to our first question. Thank you for going there with me for a little bit. Why does God take so long to answer our questions or our prayers? One possible answer that we see in scripture is that God uses this waiting time to actually forge us into the kinds of people who can worship at all times. But in that stretch of time, when we are waiting, when we're going through the dark night of the soul or the valley of the shadow of death, God shows us that this is simply a part of the waiting process. I hate to break it to you, but this is just a part of being in a broken, sinful world. We experience this depravity in very real emotional kind of ways. And it may feel crushing in the moment, but new wine is coming soon. If you feel depressed today or are questioning God or are doubting in your faith, you're not broken. You're not far from God. He's so, I hate that phrase, he's so close to you. He loves you. He's restoring you. Does this make our waiting easier? No, but it does show us a reason for the suffering. And sometimes that's all we need to keep going, amen? Okay, the second question we wanna ask is, how can I stay motivated in prayer? David says in verse three, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Okay, so after these questions of doubt or concern that David's already asked, he then goes on to ask God two more things. I just love this guy. He says, consider me and answer me. David wanted answers. And not only that, David wanted God to keep him alive. David's just like, look, help a brother out, man. I know your promise. You've given me the promise of being a king. I'm ready to step into it. Please just meet me halfway here. Like, I am here, I am ready. When are you gonna come through, God? And this shows us that David hadn't totally lost hope in God. If he had, maybe he would have prayed for God just to end his life already. Maybe he would have prayed for the sleep of death to actually come over him. But David didn't say that. Instead, he wanted to live and beat his enemies at their own game. He was ready to outlast his father-in-law and to take the throne at God's appointed time. He was anxious to work toward the promise that God had already made to him. In Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, there's a story of a man who lived in the Auschwitz concentration camp during the Holocaust. And one night while he was in the concentration camp, he had a dream where a voice told him that he could wish for something, anything, and in his dream, he wished to know when he'd be freed from the concentration camp. He's like, I just, give me a date, please. And the voice told him, all right, March 30th, March 30th. He experienced this dream in February. So he's like, okay, there's a little bit of time. I'm sure things will get better as the days and weeks go on. But as the days ticked by, the war got worse 
and worse. And on March 29th, the day before this promise was supposed to be fulfilled, the man went unconscious. And on March 30th, he went into a coma. And on March 31st, the day after, he died. Reflecting on his friend's death, Victor said, the ultimate cause of my friend's death was that the, un, I'm sorry, that the, the expected liberation did not come and he was severely disappointed. Severely disappointed. Victor believed that his friend's disappointment lowered the man's ability to fight the illness that eventually took his life. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, but I do think that this story gives us a glimpse into David's desire for God to light up his eyes and to keep him alive. David had a reason to live. Friedrich Nietzsche once said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And although I wouldn't recommend to read Nietzsche for any of your spiritual advice, if you're familiar with him, he's a prominent atheist, but it is interesting that he recognizes the power of purpose, right? Whether you believe in God or not, there's no doubt that a reason for living is what helps people fight for a better future. This is what David is literally doing. But for the Christian, we have the ultimate purpose, right? We have to follow Jesus and help others do the same. Love God, love people. But in order to fully comprehend what it means to live into our God-given purpose as disciples and as disciple makers, we have to go through this process called spiritual formation. We can't just will ourselves into being disciples or disciple makers. We have to be reborn, regenerated, um, and repurposed by God. You know, Viktor Frankl, he had this thing in his head when he was in the concentration camp. He's like, I'm gonna get through this because I know my wife is okay and she's fighting too. And one day we're gonna be able to look back on this and just celebrate that we got through it. And as he's thinking that, he didn't know, but his wife had already died. But he was willing himself just to wait, just to endure. The Christian call to make disciples, to be a disciple maker, it's, uh, I mean, it's just, it's so powerful that the Spirit gives us the strength to actually do it. We actually need, we can't just will ourselves into it. We, we need Jesus' Spirit um, to truly, truly help us. So Frankel and Nietzsche, they both recognized that there's a need for willpower to fuel purpose, but the Christian understands that willpower can't fuel the Christian life. That becomes legalism at some point. Only spirit-led revelation from Jesus will enable us to fulfill our Christian purpose. So instead of trying to force our will to live for Jesus, spiritual formation is actually the process that God uses to transform us into the kind of people who willingly follow the way of Jesus. Dallas Willard once said, Christians generally only find their way into this divine life, the spiritually formed life, slowly and with great difficulty. And it's not exactly a pep talk, but it is so true. We can't just will ourselves. This is a, it's a long process of becoming like Jesus. And David was a shining example of what this spiritually formed life could look like because he had started following God when he was just a, a young shepherd boy. 
He's in his mid-20s now. He's been following God for most of his life, experienced the presence of God for most of his life. He knew God. He waited for God. He found his reason to live in God's promise and was seen as a man after God's own heart. So let me just ask you, do you feel the, the conviction to live? And I mean like really live where you're using all of your energy to accomplish the goals that God has put in front of you to accomplish? Have you received God's purposes for your life? Because newsflash, God has a purpose for you. It's, it's in scripture. God tells us to keep our bodies free from sexual immorality. That's a purpose. He's called us to worship God like we're living temples. That's a purpose. He's called us to make disciples. These are just some things that God has lightened our eyes to see as we simply just open up scripture and read the text on the page. These are the things that allow us to join in on God's mission to defeat the powers of evil and to pull people into relationship with Jesus. And this way, the spiritually formed person prays that God would empower them to live out God's purposes, not just to escape the difficulties of life, but to pray into the difficulty that's in front of us so we can be a witness of God's glory. For David, you know, he didn't have the New Testament call to make disciples, but he did have God's command and ordination to be a king. So David recognized that his purpose was only sustained by that word of God. He received that as life and his purpose, which is why he was so terrified to think that God may have abandoned him. Like, God, where is your word? I need, I need your constant guidance in my life. And we have to ask ourselves, do we live our lives with this much dependence on God's word and call for our lives? Is he our lifeline today? So when we ask the question, how can I stay motivated to keep praying, we see that God doesn't just motivate us, but he changes us into people who are aligned with God's heart. And as he transforms our hearts and minds through sanctification, through that spiritual formation process, we become people who aren't motivated, but repurposed like David to live for Jesus and for his glory. Okay, now we have to ask our last question. Can I trust God to eventually answer my prayers? Verse five says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Okay, if you read those first four verses like I did, it seems like this took a very hard right into a different direction. It seems like David um, went from questioning to now declaring his trust in God and now rejoicing in God's forgiveness and saving grace. And he's just recounting how he's received bountifully from God. So what happened? <laughs> what happened from verse four to five? It's actually not about what happened after, but before. Like we already discussed, David had become a worshipful man. This verse five was written before this psalm was even written. Like a roll of undeveloped film that goes through the process of becoming developed photographs, so had God developed this raw shepherd boy into a worshipful warrior. So what were some of the sanctifying tools 
that God used to make him into this kind of man who could both plead with God and praise God all at the same time? Well, first, God proved himself to David and therefore won David's trust. He used the the gift of trust. So David said that he trusted God, he trusted God, which implies that God had previously proven himself to be good on his word, right? David may have questioned God, but he never truly doubted God. Why? Because there was trust between him and God. And how did he develop this kind of trust? He spent time with God. We will not grow in our trust in God unless we take the time to learn who God is. Oftentimes, our, what we think are faith issues are simply knowledge issues. We just don't know. We just don't know God. And how do we acquire that knowledge? We acquire knowledge through reading, through listening, through experience the presence of God and his word. Secondly, God saved David's life and therefore won David's allegiance. David knew that God alone was the one who saved him from being killed by Saul for this long. Even though David, he didn't fully understand what the future held, he did know that God had promised him the throne and that God would preserve his life until he fulfilled that promise. So in that sense, David held on to the saving power of God to take him into God's promises. And thirdly, God gave David many gifts and therefore became David's sole provider. I mean, David had the king's daughter. Men adored him. He had power and status. He was like the ultimate alpha dog. But even more than that, he had God's favor on his life. God spoke to David. God used David to kill Goliath. God gave him a promise. God gave him a purpose. So God dealt bountifully with David. So when we ask the question, can I trust God to answer my prayers? What we see that, what we see is that it's actually impossible to truly doubt God when we know him. It's impossible to truly doubt God when you know him. David was compelled to worship God because he knew God. And this is the secret toward living a worshipful life, knowing God. Yes, you will have questions like David did, and they'll be nasty, and they'll be funky, and you'll hope that nobody ever hears or reads those prayers that you say. But God is with us as we know him. When we know God, we can ask the hard questions and praise God all at the same time. So the question is, do you know him today? And I mean, like, really, do you know him can you remember conversations that God had with Noah? Can you remember what God said to Moses when Moses was doubting his calling? Can you remember what Jesus said to the lepers, to the prostitutes, and to the sick people that he ministered to? There's obviously no judgment if you can't remember those stories. But if we don't know those stories, if we don't know the language that God has used with people in the past, if we don't know his word and hold on to it in our hearts, then how could we ever say that we actually know God? And if we don't actually know God, then how could we ever trust him? 
It's just a hollow trust if we don't know his word, his style, the way he has conversations, the way he speaks to his people. It's okay if we don't know him today, but once you do begin to get to know him through Jesus, as we see his word and his character, what you'll learn is that God really will never truly let you down. If anything, what you'll learn is that he's working himself into your prayers more than you could ever actually imagine. And if you'd say that you feel distance or maybe like just familiar with God, maybe the relationship is it's complicated, my encouragement to you is to read the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I know all of you have probably read those books, but these books, this is where you read Jesus' words. This is how you get to know God himself, by ingesting the Sermon on the Mount, by seeing how Jesus healed people, how he received people. Welcome Jesus' perspectives as it challenges yours. Don't try to reason it out. Just allow God to blow the lid off your beliefs because Jesus is literally waiting for you. He wants to meet you so that he can lead you to his father in heaven. He wants to say, you're adopted into the family. This is now your father as well. Jesus says in Matthew 14, verse seven, if you really know me, if you really know me, then you will know the father as well. We must be people who receive the invitation to not just follow Jesus, but to know Jesus, because this is where trust in life is truly formed. So why not receive his invitation to follow him? You can bring your doubts, your concerns, your worries. You can yell at God. He's a big boy. He can take it. And if you do, Jesus will welcome you into relationship with our Father in heaven so you can know him today and trust him tomorrow. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful that you're a God who receives our questions and responds with your word. Thank you for being a God who takes our burdens and lifts them off our shoulders. Thank you for being a God who is with us every moment of life. You don't run away when things get hard. You press in. And we pray, God, today that you would be with those of us who are feeling spiritually depressed today. Would you walk through the valley? Would you stay up late with us through the dark night of the soul? Would you help us to see your goodness and your faithfulness through every moment? For those of us who are not experiencing that right now, would you please continue to forge us into the kind of people who, when those moments do come of pain, that we can fully embrace the pain, acknowledge the questions, and still say, but you're God, and I follow you. Would you please create in your people a deep resilience for the lives that are in front of us? And thank you for just your comfort, Lord. I just love those words um, in Corinthians about how you are the God of all comfort. You see us. If you're here today and you want to just respond to this message, I'd encourage you, everybody can just close their eyes still and you can bow your heads if you like. But if you'd like to just respond to this Jesus who wants to be with you, who wants to save you and redeem you. I just want to lead you through a, a brief prayer. So you can pray this just in the quietness of your heart. 
to say, God, I have so many questions. I don't have the answers. I'm maybe mad or frustrated. And I have my concerns. But I want to choose to trust you today. I want to know you better today. So would you please reveal yourself to me in your word, by your spirit. I open up my life to receive your authority and guidance. And I choose to submit my life to you. I want to love you and I want to praise you. So please help me. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.